The first thing this gentleman says to me, he goes, you know, it's January 24th. And he goes, yeah, so it's January 24th. So that was the, the last day that you were ever in your home when the police, when the child services came and yanked you out. <laughs> that was our opening greeting. Oh, damn. It is. I did not realize that. <laughs> that kind of set the tone for probably the next 48 hours after that, because I think... Uh, when you're talking about your trauma, and I'm sharing this story about my mother, about the murder, about everything I was going through as a child, <laughs> I don't tend to think about like what those dates are. And I didn't really realize that as I'm telling the story, like this is playing back in real time, 33 years ago to the day. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? Happy Friday, everybody. Wow. I got to tell you something. I have quite the hangover. And no, it is not from drinking alcohol. That is something I have not done. I'm proud to say in two years and two or three months, it is a trauma hangover. And that's what I want to talk about this week in this week's episode. Yeah. But first I just want to say uh, thank you to all you guys who have discovered me on YouTube. My YouTube channel is growing. So thank you guys very much. And I've, I have a lot of fans that, uh, you guys have discovered me. I've uh, been to some articles in Fox News, Yahoo News recently in the last week. And um, I've also been doing a lot of interviews. And that's what I'm going to talk about too. But uh, I want to go to this week's listener question of the week. I haven't done these so far for 2023, but I need to get back in the habit. Because you guys reach out to me with your questions and your comments. And I do read them whenever I can. And I try to respond or at least like and give it a thumbs up and say thank you uh, whenever I can. But this one comes from Barbara Centeni on YouTube. And she writes, Collier Landry, when your father talks about this, he refers to himself like he is an observer. This is an indicator that he is removing himself as the perp and viewing as a bystander. Some people categorize and departmentalize events so they don't mentally harm themselves with their own crime. You didn't catch it, but when he asked, well, when asked about the jackhammer, he starts out, well, it was used. It was supposed to be used by my friend. So she is talking about the episode, which I have entitled called Lies Caught on Tape. It's an uncovered radio interview with my father. So my father had done a series of interviews while he was in prison about five years after he murdered my mother and they were full of conspiracy theories. Now I am, I have just as, as you guys know, who listen to this podcast and have listened to it for a while, a lot of this show is my take on, 
my own experiences in true crime and others and interviewing people, but it's also about my process of healing and coming to grips with all, with all of this, hence the name Moving Past Murder. And I have over, just in the, really in the last year, discovered a lot of things like these random tape recordings of interviews my father gave while he was in prison. And they were all around when he was trying to overturn his conviction. He was filing an appeal and some other motion. And he's always done that over the years and decades. But uh, I have discovered a few more tapes, which I'm going to make into some episodes here very soon. Yeah, this one was a really interesting interview because it is chock full of just complete nonsense and garbage. Obviously, Barbara, as you astutely pointed out, yes, he does. <laughs> he does refer, refer to these things as an observer. And absolutely, that is a, a, by far a manipulation tactic to manipulate the audience, to get people to sympathize with his position or to just really elevate himself on a platform and to add what he thinks is credibility and validity to what he's saying, which of course, anyone with any sort of common sense knows that, um, well, it's all bullshit, right? But um, it is just one of those things that, yeah, when you listen to them, when you play them back, it uh, it never ceases to amaze me. So I'm glad that you you caught that. And yes, and I don't always catch everything when I'm commenting on these things because I'm in just pure shock as I'm listening to it because it's the first time I'm listening to it when I'm recording the podcast. So they all just kind of, it hits me. And I, and I do this a lot too, when I read the letters on the podcast too, because these are often the first or second time I'm, you know, second time, probably I'm looking at them in my life. So I haven't seen them for years and years and it still like really catches me off guard. And sometimes I get angry about it. Sometimes I'm just like, ah, whatever it is, what it is. But, uh, it's always entertaining for sure when you're uh, dealing with the ramblings of a narcissist and a psychopath. And uh, unfortunately, my father is that person. Ah, oy vey. Trauma hangover is what I want to talk about. And I have been experiencing it for the better part of the last few days. So about a week ago, I had a a production company, a news organization come into town to film with both myself and my good friend, Tara Newell, who I host Survivor Squad podcast with. And uh, we had planned around that a survivor, true crime survivors event, which took place a few days ago at one of our dear friends, uh, Amy Chesler, whose mother was unfortunately murdered by her brother. It's a horrific, um, a horrific story. She wrote a book about it and she actually has a podcast coming out called what came next, which releases, I believe, on 3-3-23. So March 3rd, I think, March, March 2nd, something like that. Um, and so uh, both myself and Tara are on that first season of the podcast. It's going to be really great. She's a wonderful, sweet, engaging, beautiful human being. So she was kind enough to have everyone over to her house. And there was about 30 of us, which was really cool. And this film crew that was sticking cameras in everyone's faces. <laughs> Uh, but it was really great and it was an amazing experience, but, but it didn't occur to me until probably, so I think they left on, they left my place on Monday. So they came in on like s Friday or Saturday, they left on Monday or Tuesday. 
and it was just like back to back to back to back events, right? And at the same time of all of this, this is like, obviously today is January 27th and it is the end of the month of January, which was the whole time in January of 1990, 33 years ago, I was living under massive duress and in a fight or flight sort of situation with living with my father while my mother is quote unquote missing and gathering evidence against him and working with police secretively at my school, which I often think about a lot of times. I wonder if it would happen or not in today's day and age and just the actual, you know, unique ability to have been able to do that as a young, as a young boy trying to find answers and justice for his mother. It's an interesting thing for me to think about. And it occurs to me like literally all the time, whenever I see these true crime cases that come out and I think about the, the mental health aspects of children, you know, not being able to go to school during the pandemic, for example. And I, and I talked about this actually at the survivor event where I was expressing because, you know, children didn't have a safe place during the pandemic. Uh, well, a lot of people didn't, obviously, and we were sheltered in place with sometimes people that we thought we knew, but we really didn't know. And I know that these situations probably sparked more cases of domestic violence and abuse in the homes uh, because nobody could go anywhere. You couldn't like have that, you couldn't go to work and have that reprieve or go to school or go to the gym or have that normal life outside of the house. And already being stuck with people who are not narcissists or abusers or anything, just like you're you're in a house with somebody, you're stuck, you can't go anywhere, you, you get on each other's nerves. But multiply that times a hundred or a thousand when you're in a home where you can't get any solace from daily, you know, physical, mental, verbal abuse. It's um it's a lot to think about. It's pretty heavy. So even at this event, we were talking about that and they were like, well, thank you for bringing that up. And I thought, well, yeah, I think about it all the time because all of that centered my whole being able to, to talk to police centered around my ability to go to school and be away from my father and my grandmother and be in what I considered a safe place to talk to the police. And I can't imagine if I didn't have that because I think the outcome would have been very very different. So, hey, um, I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways with that. At this time, so we're in the end of January and my, my, uh, the last day that I was at my house was, well, let me go back to this for a second. So this film crew leaves and I have just stacks of interviews on other podcasts and with a few journalists and it is just like, I looked at my schedule, I pull it up on Tuesday and I go, oh my God, like uh, my day is packed with doing all these things. And there's like a Twitter spaces thing I was doing. And then there was some other live, I have my Instagram lives that I do every Tuesday, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And I, I thought, God, there's just a, my schedule is really demanding and I haven't given myself a break at all. And I'm obviously I do this podcast. I talk to a lot of people about my story, but I didn't realize what kind of hold it was having on me. So I go to do this interview. And if this gentleman is listening, it is nothing against you. And there's, it, it, it's absolutely fine with what happened, but it was just really put something in perspective. So 
the first thing this guy guy says to me when I get online to record and leading up to it, I couldn't get a hold like via email. Like it was a very slow response. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, can people just give out their phone numbers so I can contact them and just say, Hey man, what's going on? Cause I always give people my phone number. You sign up to interview me. I give you my phone number so you can just reach out to me. We don't have to deal with emails or waiting back and forth. So there's a lot of time that was passing and it's giving me anxiety because I'm like, I don't have the, like, where am I logging into? When are we meeting? And I, of course, want to show up on time and do a great job. But the first thing this gentleman says to me, he goes, you know, it's January 24th. And he goes, yeah, so it's January 24th. So that was the, the last day that you were ever in your home when the police, when the child services came and yanked you out. <laughs> that was our opening greeting. Oh, damn. It is. I did not realize that. (laughs) That kind of set the tone for probably the next 48 hours after that, because I think uh, when you're talking about your trauma, and I'm sharing this story about my mother, about the murder, about everything I was going through as a child... (laughs) I don't tend to think about like what those dates are. And I didn't really realize that as I'm telling the story, like this is playing back in real time, 33 years ago to the day when I'm literally yanked out of, of the house by child protective services, because my father said he's going to take me to Florida on a little father and son quote air quotes for those of you listening and not watching uh, a father and son vacation to Florida. And I had told Detective Messmore at the time, I said, I'm not coming back from Florida because I think my father was beginning to catch on that I was working with police because somehow police were keep coming to the house <laughs> and knowing more and more facts. So uh, I think that, you know, the, the cat was out of the bag at that point, but it was really bizarre talking to him on that like anniversary date. And that was the first thing this guy pointed out to me. And nothing against him. It's totally fine. It's complete human nature to even talk about that. You're interviewing me about my story. So of course it came to mind and you know your facts and you're like, hey, I remember this because he's done a lot of research on everything. But but it just, it literally took me by complete surprise. And it just, it really knocked me, knocked me for six, I guess as they'd say, or really I was taken aback by it because... I thought here I am talking about this 33 years later to like the day, the day that I was yanked out of the house that I never got to see, you know, I never got to see my dog again. And you know, that was like the last of like the normalcy. I mean, even though life was not normal, my mother, my mother was gone and things were just wacky in my home leading up to that. It was, it, it, there was like a finality of getting like yanked out of your home by child protective services and seeing the crime lab in your house going through and executing search warrants. It was just so surreal. And all these memories just kind of kept cascading down. And I, I only had like a like an hour, an hour and 15 minutes to talk to this guy because I had another thing because I was back to back to back that day. And, and again, the next day and the day, day after that. So I thought to myself, well, wow, it's so, it's so weird to play all back in real time. And it's like all these emotions cascade. So I'm trying to tell the whole story while I'm literally living in this experience, like reliving this experience based upon what he said initially to me. And it got me thinking like, because I had over the course of the weekend and up until like this afternoon, well, so this afternoon, the day before, it was Thursday, but it's really Friday when you're listening to this. 
I had been telling, I had probably told my story six or seven times. So at least once a day for the last week, at least once a day and getting into very distinct details of it. Uh, and I apologize if grammatical decay is setting in, but very, I was getting very detailed in telling my story. And I was actually thinking about things that I, I, I didn't even remember happening. And then they came up to me and I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that. And these engagements that I had, and I can't pull it right off the top of my head, but I was breaking it down for somebody yesterday. And I thought, oh, wow, I haven't really thought about that in a long time. And it got me to think this is a trauma hangover. <laughs> and this is something that I don't think that we, as when people are talking or engaging with people who are, and I hate this term survivor. I use it all the time, but I hate it. It is what it is. Right. And I'm like, we don't really think about the bombardment of questions that we ask people because it's very difficult. And there's been a lot of talk about this Idaho four case with, uh, with Brian Koberger and being a stalker. This has nothing to do with what I, me personally, but, and there was, and as I learn a little bit about this case, cause I really don't pay attention to true crime. I try not to get into this because everybody's talking about it. Right. But there seems to be a lot. I know he was stalking either one of these women in the, this house, these college students or both of these girls. And it, and obviously he was looking at their lives on social media and it becomes very difficult when you are someone who people are reaching out to constantly about your story or about who you are. It becomes very difficult to navigate parasocial relationships because people will often say, oh, well, you're not engaging with me or whatever. And, I'm, and I want to say to people sometimes like, guys, I, I do engage as much as I can. I also have a like a career that I'm, <laughs> that I'm doing as well as the podcast, uh, that I have to work on, which is working as a filmmaker and which is also very, very demanding on me. Some people are like, Oh, well, I guess you're not available. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you're saying that to me because you're one person, but there are literally about a hundred other people that are reaching out to me today to ask me questions or commenting on things. And I do my best to, to really, to really respond to everyone, but, and, and this is not me kvetching about this. This is just me explaining this, but I thought about these navigation, uh, navigating these parasocial relationships. And somehow, you know, when you look at this Brian Koberger, I feel like he thought he had this connection with the victims that he didn't really have. And judging by the violence of the crime, I think that it was a very personal thing for him that he felt that he was in a different relationship than he may have been in. And, and this makes me go back to a conversation I had had with Amanda Knox a few months ago. And she was talking about the nature of the crime that she was wrongfully imprisoned for and how it was very personal. Like stabbing people is very intimate, just like my father murdering my mother by smashing the back of her skull and suffocating her. It's a very I think when you when you look at violence like to stab someone or to strangle them it's quite different than shooting somebody with a firearm it's a lot more personal and still just as violent like guns not a good thing you know not good to shoot people you know unless it's in self-defense or unless you know it's not good to to murder people but i feel 
when there are these connections, when something is so, I mean, to really stab someone is very, very personal. So it got me thinking about this whole Brian Koberger thing. And I don't know why I'm rambling about this, but it is the case of the moment everybody's talking about. And then there's these Murdaugh murders in this trial that's going to go on. And then obviously we have the case of Anna Walsh, which I talked about last week. And, you know, which is just like tragic to me because it has so many, again, so many parallels with my mother's own case. And this poor woman, and I think about the kids and, and, and I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to bring it up again. I think about the personal connection. So navigating these parasocial relationships and then trying to figure out like, Hey, you know, how do I say to people, maybe I'm saying it now. I don't know. How do we, how do you say, I just need a little bit of a break. I need to disconnect because I had a, a survivor friend who she kind of snapped at me for a second, but then she was like, I've just been under a lot of like stress and people coming at me, asking me all these questions. And I was like, Hey, look, I totally get it, man. I, I totally, totally get it. But I think that sometimes we have to allow ourselves a lot of grace and we have to ask that from people who are asking us questions all the time. And we also have to give that same grace to them because they don't, I don't think people really understand what it's like to continually tell your story over and over again. And I think back to like when I was not doing the podcast, when I was a, just a filmmaker and how, ex, how I would exhaust myself just working and shooting day after day and then editing projects and then shooting again and how I would stress myself out. And I'd have to go like to a hole of just, just, you know, I, well, at the time I, I drank alcohol, so I would just check out and drink alcohol and just be like, I'm out for two days. That is obviously something I don't do anymore. And I thought, wow, that was like a response. And, and when all these things started coming through of me again, repeating the story over and over again, and I'm just like, my God, it's really beating it into my head. I started thinking like, what do I do? Like what, you know, to use the word of the day, mindfulness, <laughs> What are my mindfulness practices that I have to like reconnect with myself and really allow myself to take space? And I've been talking about it on the flip side recently about people taking time for their own, for their mental health when they're looking at true crime or when they're looking, because there's been so much consumption over these murders and all these things. And, and it's just so heavy on your soul. But I also need to take my own advice <laughs> in a lot of ways because I'm just like, I, here I am talking about it, talking about it and not taking a break from it. And so I started making this list that I wanted to share and I was like going through the internet and I was like, what are some really good mindfulness practices? So I want to share them with you guys, if that's okay. So the first is breathing because that is something that we all do. Obviously we have to survive, but just being really aware of your breath when you're in these situations. And I do this a lot to myself. I have to take these little moments and I've been become really, really good at when these situations are stressing me out that I take these little, little pockets, like little pockets of time, two, three minute windows of just taking a break and just saying, okay, let me just take a moment. Okay. Because there's so much hustle and bustle that comes into our world just in a normal thing. You know, the phone, the, the, the alerts, the Facebook, the Instagram, the whatever, social media is popping off everywhere, emails, this, that, text message. You just got to disconnect. And this is even without being, talking about your trauma. I think 
in a lot of ways, when I think back to the alerts and everything that we get, the constant, constantly on alert to like be available for people in social media situations and email and the way that the world is so connected now, uh, we have to really set some boundaries with ourselves and the people around us and say, I need a moment to just not talk about this, to not hear things, to just silence. I often, I love music. I love listening to music. It is definitely something that I do to chill out. You guys see the guitars behind me. I play guitar. I, I, I really get into music, but sometimes I don't listen to anything but silence. And it is so refreshing just to kind of be still in your thoughts. And for years, I tried to practice meditation and I would, and I would ask friends of mine, I would say, Hey, you're into yoga. You're into meditation. You're like in the yogi thing. What is meditation really? Because I can't stop thinking about this, or I can't stop thinking about that. All these thoughts just keep cascading in my head. And I'm thinking about like tomorrow. Okay. I got to go to the grocery store. I got to go to the gym. I got to go do this. I got to run this errand. I got to work on this. I got to get this job. And I could never sit still in my thoughts. And so Tuesday night when I was done with everything, I, put my head on my pillow and I wasn't even ready to like necessarily go to bed. But I just said to myself, I'm going to sit here for five minutes and challenge myself not to think of anything. And for the first time ever in trying to just meditate, I thought of nothing, nothing entered my mind. I didn't have to like tell it to go away. I wasn't thinking of anything. I was just still. Noticing my breath and just going, oh my goodness. And then I had what they call progressive muscle relaxation. And I could just feel everything, all the tension, like leaving my body for the moment. And this is only five minutes. And I thought, God, if I could just practice this every day, this would be great. And I think, I feel like, a lot of trauma survivors, or at least just speaking for myself, I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to find pockets of just being able to do the things that are important to me. And for me, and I was sharing this on a Twitter space earlier this week, you know, my thing is like, I like to exercise. I like to eat well. I like eat really good, good food. I feel like it's so nourishing for your soul and for your body, yada, yada. But, uh, those are things that are really, really key. And I, and I think when I was younger, I really got away from working out every day or, or, or at least doing some sort of physical activity every day or trying to really, and, and I have lately too. I, I'm not to say like I get busy and sometimes it falls by the wayside. I don't get to the gym and it kind of sucks, but I do try to do something physical every day because it's so important to me. And I think that you really got to put that put that almost on a pedestal because every time I do it, every time I practice doing physical activity to release the energy and tension inside me, even though I'm like, like last night, for example, I went to go swimming at like 1030 at night at the pool. And I thought, okay, I have to come back. I have to write some stuff. I have to get some work done. And I was like 10 minutes in the pool and I was like, okay, I'm done. And I was like, no, let me go a little bit lower. You know, cause normally I'll go like 45 minutes or an hour. I said, oh, you know, I'm not going to go any longer. Okay, I'm just... And then all of a sudden, I was like in my zone and it's 40 minutes later and I'm like, okay, 
I feel really good. And I got out of that pool. I had swam really fast and I got a great workout in and I felt amazing walking out of there at like 1130. And I was like, and it, it was very cold. It was like 40 degrees outside and I was a little wet, but I was trying to be bundled up, but I felt amazing. And I was like, God, every time I do this, if I put it off every time I do it, I'm like, why did you put that off? That was like the most amazing thing that made the day all worth it. And that allows you and leads you into like scanning your body and just taking inventory of that. And when you're experiencing these traumatic, these traumatic situations and you're reliving this trauma, you have to really take a moment to like scan your body and feel where all this is and understand and just try to get that out of you. Now, look, I don't practice yoga, so I have many friends that do. But these are all part of the things that I, I believe they teach you in yoga. Another thing I do is guided imagery. So I think about things like peaceful places. And I talked about this in some of my interviews because the guy asked me, he goes, what was your first childhood memory? The same guy who asked me, who pointed out that <laughs> this is 33 years to the day that you got removed from your house because your father was getting arrested and you had to go to foster care. He also said, what was your first what what is your your first memory as a child and i said my first memory as a child was the ocean it really is and i am fortunate enough to live a mile from the ocean and that is something that even like when i was in foster care and facing having to go and face my father in the courtroom and and deal with all that because it was really really challenging that was a really harrowing experience for me <laughs> as I'm sure everyone can understand, I would always think of the ocean. And it started when I was a little, little kid because my mother loved the ocean. We would go to the ocean. We would go to the Jersey shore when I, when I had gotten, uh, when I, when I was a, lived in Virginia, we would go to the Chesapeake Bay. When I was a little baby, we lived in Pensacola, Florida, right on the Gulf of Mexico. So I always had these memories of the ocean. And then I moved to California when I was like 21. So, always been around the ocean for the most part so that's something that i think about and it just brings me back to this place of calm walking and journaling not walking while journaling or journaling while walking rather yeah there we go walking every day is always something that's really good for me even if i can't get that that exercise because i get to get out there and do this physical activity and so many people fight me on this they're like well i don't have time to, I don't have time. you do have time to just take a moment walk, enjoy your life. Journaling has also been something, and I'm going to start reading my journal because I, I just found my journal that I had started like, God, in like 2010. And journaling is probably one of those really key things because you can say whatever you want in your journal. And I think that, you know, it took me a long time with journaling to, you know, I don't know, I had to pass over the, the judgmental phase. I think I'm really hard because I'm a creative, so I'm really hard on myself when I'm journaling and I'm like, this just sounds stupid. If I wonder if anybody reads this and I'm thinking to myself, well, then of course, like nobody's going to read this except for me. But then I'm like, oh no, I'm going to sound stupid. Just do it. That's all I got to do. Just do it. Uh, <laughs> it's just funny. And, and all these things, you know, they're just good practices to get in and I have to remind myself of this a lot, which is why I'm having this conversation with you guys. And I'm just sort of riffing this one because I, you know, after a week of just being completely 
stuck in like a trauma, a complete trauma hangover. Your body just is exhausted. You're just overwhelmed all the time and you really don't realize it. And it gets me thinking like how many people in the world constantly or consistently live like this? And I think a lot of us do and we don't realize it. And you just got to take the time. Obviously for me too, like I said, music, art, I mean, what I do for a living is artistic. So there is that, but I have to also disconnect and do different artistic practices that I'm not really into. Like I draw and I did that as a little kid. I draw, I, I take away from you know, like doing things on the computer and I create outside of that. I write, as I said, in a journal, I write on like a, this tablet that doesn't have an internet on it. Uh, it doesn't have it. I was telling somebody today, they were, I don't know, they were talking about word processors. And I said, oh, word processors are back. I saw this thing on Instagram where there's little typewriters you can buy that are word processors. And then she said, well, what's the point of that? I said, the point of that is it doesn't connect to the internet. So there's no, <laughs> there's no distraction. So if you're a writer and you want to write and you want to type something, the good old word processor is the way to go because there's, you're free of distraction or the typewriter or whatever. And she just thought that was really funny. And I was like, no, but seriously, you don't want to get the distractions. <laughs> uh, and just really... You know, being in whatever artistic practice that is. And again, you have to like take away from that, like sort of element of judgment of yourself and go, oh, this isn't any good. Oh, this is stupid. Oh, this is this and that and the other. And I just, I don't know. I became so keenly aware of all of this this, just this week because I literally just wanted to crash like a sack of old potatoes and just be like, Oh my goodness. I am just, I'm just done. And, uh, I don't know. Those are my tips that I wanted to share as someone who has just literally been re-experiencing his trauma every single day for the last week <laughs> and doing it on camera and doing it in such a variety of things that sometimes you just got to remind yourself it's okay to disconnect, take a moment for yourself and just breathe. On that note, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio.